one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everybody <laughs> to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Dinesh Palapana. Uh, Dinesh is a medical doctor who works at the Gold Coast University Hospital, and he's going to be helping us today discuss DKA, which is diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, DKA, the obviously is represented or is a condition that you'll find in people who are diabetics, predominantly type one diabetics where they're starting to undergo ketogenesis, which is the production of ketones from fatty acids. And these ketones often spit out acid or hydrogen ions as a byproduct, making their blood acidic. Now, there's many different issues downstream from DKA uh, that can result in coma and can also result in death, for example. So what we're going to do is discuss DKA. We're going to use a case study, and then we're going to ask, ask Dinesh from his expertise clinically what you do to uh, to diagnose and also manage this issue. Sounds good. So your your take-home point, Mike, was yeah. the DKA has three kind of parts to it, hypoglycemia, ketones, and acidosis. Mm-hmm. Happy with that? Happy with and that. obviously in the background, diabetes. Yeah, right. specifically type 1. Okay. All right. So um, this is the scenario, and this is, I, I'm led to believe, is a typical kind of textbook scenario that would be likely to present to ED. Is that right, Dinesh? Yeah, yeah, potentially. <laughs> All right. He's going to hear it first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have a 17-year-old male presents to ED um, with an increased um, degree of weakness and lethargy over uh, two days. Um, he is thirsty as well as producing lots of urine. Uh, the temperature is taken and it's 38 degrees. Uh, blood pressure is 98 over 64. Heart rate is 130 and respiratory rate is 28 and deep, so deep and rapid. Deep and fast respiratory rate. Uh, bloods are taken and the glucose measured at 23 millimoles per litre. Potassium is 6.1, sodium is 130, chlorides 100, uh, bicarbonate is 12, and creatinine is 0.08 millimoles a litre. So that's the 
presentation. So can I just quickly say, just so people don't have to do the math in their head, that basically the glucose is high, the potassium is high, the sodium and chloride are normal, the bicarbonate is low, the creatinine is slightly high, and the pH is low. I didn't put pH there. So 7.29. Yeah, 7.29 is the pH. Okay, so Dinesh, this male, young male presents to you now. What, what, what would be the first thing you'd potentially do? So the f- first and the most critical part in any presentation to the ED, depending on the state of the patient, is just to get as thorough history as possible. So if this patient is, say, comatose or very lethargic, then a thorough history won't be possible. And it's probably more important to start managing them straight away. But I suppose in the context of us talking about DKA, the two things that you might want to know about this patient is, do they have a diagnosis of diabetes? Mm -hmm. That's one. And if they do, have they been taking their insulin? Because uh, management of people's insulin or mismanagement of it is one of the main causes of care or this might be someone who's presenting initially with a new diagnosis so usually it would be so just so people are aware we keep saying more predominantly type 1 diabetes as opposed to type 2 and so just very briefly type 1 diabetes is most commonly identified in younger adults exactly Uh, autoimmune in which the body starts to destroy the beta cells the pancreas which produce the insulin, which means they have very low, if not no, insulin being produced. And you compare this to type 2 diabetes, where they basically become insulin insensitive, and that they do produce insulin, but the body doesn't necessarily recognize it, uh, doesn't let it do its job. So in this case, what we're looking at is basically a total absence of insulin. That's right. Okay. All right, so this individual's come in, you said potentially they're an undiagnosed type 1 diabetic, or they're a type 1 diabetic who has just have, haven't managed their insulin very well or at all. Yeah, okay. potentially. Yeah. Potentially. So, um, so if you assume that it uh, hasn't been diagnosed with it, yeah. what would you need to get to a diagnosis of type 1? Um, so initially, you'd take a bit of a history. Whether, you know, you'd ask whether they have a family history of diabetes, um, find out a bit more of those things, see how they've been doing over the last weeks to months. And then the next thing would go down to their blood results, really. Um, so your examination is going to tell you a few different things, like how they're doing at the time. But to specifically get to a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, it's going to depend on the labs. So this guy, is, we've said that he's got uh, hyperglycemia. We said that he's acidotic. Um, and that's already giving us a bit of a hint as to what might be going on. Okay. Okay. And with this, um, the glucose level, what I did in this case was um, I didn't make it super high. Yeah. Because um, I just wanted to open up the idea that in terms of the diabetic states being acute complications of either type 1, type 2, um, the two main acute ones would be a DKA. Yeah. And then the HHS, which is the hyperosmo. Uh, what is it? Hyperglycemic, Hyperglycemic state. state. Right. But I'm led to believe, correct me if I'm wrong, in the, the type 2, the hyperosmolar, hyperglycemic state, the sugar, the glucose levels is super high compared super to a DKA. Exactly. Yes. Okay. All right. So let's just assume, uh, can we all assume that this is a type 1 case? Yes. Are we happy with that? Can we quickly explain for the listeners why the, I know it sounds 
quite straightforward, but why this blood glucose is going to be higher. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're a diabetic, and they don't have insulin, and insulin is required as the key to open up the cells, let the glucose in, so the cells can take the glucose, store it, or use it for energy. And without insulin, there's certain types of insulin-dependent tissues, such as fat cells and muscle cells, that require insulin. And without those, the insulin is just trapped in the bloodstream. Now, the body thinks that it's starving in this sense, and so the liver starts to undergo glycogenolysis, which is the breakdown of glycogen into glucose, and ends up freeing more glucose into the bloodstream. In addition to that, you've got these counter-regulatory hormones that when insulin is low, will be high, and this includes glucagon, for example, and cortisol, and sometimes growth hormone too. And what they do is they also promote the production of glucose from either stored glycogen or non-carbohydrate-based forms, and this is called glycogenolysis. What the primary outcome of this is, is that glucose just continues to rise up in the bloodstream, and that's why you get this hyperglycemic state. Is that okay? That's it. Okay, cool. So, So with this guy, so he's had two days of lethargy and weakness. So if he has gone into a state of lack of insulin, mm-hmm. he's not essentially getting glucose into his cells. Yeah. So he's not producing ATP. And would you be right by saying that's essentially potentially the source of lethargy and weakness, tiredness? It's just not getting any energy. Yeah. Yeah. Happy with that? Yeah. That's that's what I'd say. All right. And so as this glucose um, hypoglycemia manifests, what further downstream effects will we start to see? Symptomatically, um, I think we've covered a lot of it. So two of the first things that generally can happen is polyuria and polydipsia. So increased thirst and increased urination. The reason for that is when you have such a high level of glucose, you're going to get an osmotic diuresis. So you're going to be excreting more glucose and the water is going to follow it out of your kidneys. And the glucose shouldn't usually be in the urine, right? That should be, it's all filtered at the kidneys, but usually a hundred percent of it when you're not a diabetic gets reabsorbed back into the body. And so if there's too much glucose and it's not being reabsorbed and it's staying within the kidneys, like you said, it's pulling that water with it and it promotes urination. That's polyuria. That's it. Okay, cool. So that's why these guys get thirsty. And we're talking a loss of a lot of fluid. We're talking several liters. Okay. Okay. So these people tend to be profoundly volume depleted. Okay. All right. And so what does that mean for their blood pressure then? It it can be quite low. Okay. Yeah. So the blood pressure can be low. Okay. So... So far, we've ticked off lethargy and weakness. Yep. And we've said the hyperglycemia, which is caused by the, the cessation of insulin, has caused the glucose to go into his urine, which has pulled water with it, and yep. has caused the polyuria. Now, with that, we've assumed that he's urinated excessively and lost mm-hmm. a lot of water, so he's dehydrated, mm-hmm. which is now essentially probably the reason why his BP is 90 out of 64. Yeah. Now, compensation would be to bump up the heart rate. Would that be fair? That's right. Okay. Um, now, is it what about that amount of blood pressure? What would that do to the kidney in terms of if you're not... If, because my understanding, if you've got a blood pressure like that, the kidney is going to start shutting down. Would that be yeah. fair? Yeah. So, 
you can get an acute kidney injury for a couple of reasons. And you can divide it into pre-renal, renal, and post-renal. And this is one of the pre-renal causes. So volume depletion means that you're hypoperfusing the kidney. So if you're not getting blood to any organ in your body, you're going to cause damage to it. Okay. So that's what we're potentially doing to the kidney here. Okay, so the kidney could be starting to shut down. So this could be kind of con- um, converse to what we saw of initially he's got polyuria. So if his kidneys are starting to stop working, would you then get a rebound effect of no urea? Um, that would have to be in the very, very advanced stages of kidney failure. Okay. Which you wouldn't expect to see in such an acute presentation. presentation. Yeah, okay. Now, if this person has had poorly controlled diabetes for many years, they can get diabetic nephropathy, right. um, which which is more related to the glucose, um, yeah. and that you know people end up on dialysis. When you get to that point with type one diabetes down the track, they have uh, damage to many organ systems. So you'll have problems with your vision, um, and you'll have a lot of end organ damage. Okay. Is it fair yeah. to say that in the acute phase that glucose is the least of the worry, but chronically for diabetics, it's the biggest worry? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Because so, in this case, what we've got is, sure, we've got hyperglycemia, but we've got all these downstream effects, which include the production of ketones, which produces acid. And then you're going to have an electrolyte imbalance, which we'll talk about shortly as a result of this. And that these, and like you said, a problem with fluid. And so would you, is it fair to say that taking into consideration the glucose, the acid, the fluid imbalance, and the electrolytes, Mm. the glucose is probably last on the list to fix up? Yeah, I mean, it's the consequence of having that high high glucose that's causing all these complications Mm. so it's going to be um in terms of treating it it's going to be a stepwise thing actually which which we'll talk about okay so yeah can i just say then now we should talk about the production of the ketones just just one final thing i just thought because the creatinine is slightly high yeah is it is it safe by assuming that that's come off the back of the kidney just starting to not work yeah okay exactly potentially Yeah. yeah Can we explain that? Because of hypo or underperfusion of the kidneys, it means that usually the kidneys are going to be filtering creatinine, which is a breakdown product of muscle metabolism, at a consistent rate, and it should be consistently filtered at a certain quantity, so we should know exactly how much we have. But if the kidneys are underperfusing, then this number is going to start to bump up in the blood. And if it bumps up, indication of hypoperfusion. Exactly, and it's a great way to monitor an acute kidney injury or monitor someone with chronic kidney disease and how they're doing. Would you just look at creatinine or would you look more of a, uh, uh, would you look at nitrogen, would you look at urea, would you look at all of them, would you? Yeah, I mean the general two things that people look at are the GFR and creatinine. Okay. So GFR is the glomerular filtration rate. Mm -hmm. Um, So those two things are the main markers that people look at acutely. Okay, cool. So, if we talk about the production of ketones, what we could probably safely say is that as these, as the blood glucose starts to bump up because of the drop in insulin, certain tissues are going to start to become hungry. Like Matt said, without the glucose, no energy is being produced. And a lot of these tissues include fat tissues, muscle tissues, some other tissues. Um, now, the brain is 
glucose independent, so the brain's still getting the glucose it needs, so that's okay. However, the glucose is getting quite high now, so it's probably getting too high for the brain, but we can get back to that shortly. But these other tissues require a means of energy, and they're not getting it from the glucose. So what starts to happen is that as these tissues, let's just say fat cells or muscle cells, don't get the glucose, they start to break down current amounts of glycogen, which is present, and they turn that glycogen, if we're looking at muscle, for example, they can't turn the glycogen back into glucose like the liver can. It turns it into something called glucose 6-phosphate. But glucose 6-phosphate is trapped in the muscles, can't leave. So it stays there and is used as an energy source. Outside of that, fat or triglycerides start to break down into fatty acids and glycerol. Now, glycerol can jump into the, the glycolysis pathway and turn into glucose and actually be used as energy, so that's fine. But fatty acids cannot. Fatty acids will jump in at a very late stage of this pathway in which it can't turn back into glucose, but turns into the Krebs cycle. Now the Krebs only in the liver, right? Only in the, only in the liver. Only in the liver and also in the mitochondria as well. So the Krebs cycle sits in the mitochondria of the liver. Only the Krebs but no cycle other cell in the body can do this besides the liver, right? So Yes, that's right. Okay. So the, the fatty acids... Because they're fatty acids, they need to be bound to a, a transport protein, so albumin predominantly. It's going to transport them to the liver. And then they need to get through a couple of membranes and they become, as they bind to a product of the Krebs cycle, which is acetyl-CoA, they become fatty acetyl-CoA, and they start to overwhelm this Krebs cycle. All these fatty acids have been broken down and they're starting to overwhelm the Krebs cycle. And... In doing so, they can't turn into energy the old-fashioned way. They start to spit out ketones as a byproduct. Now, the three different types of ketones are beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. Acetone is a gas that you breathe off. Is that correct? And so, have you experienced acetone clinically? Yeah, so one of the textbooks, things that they talk about with diabetic ketoacidosis is a fruity odor in the breath. So, you know, kind of like nail polish remover type. Sweet. Exactly. <laughs> I'm smelling it right now. <laughs> no, it's quite fruity, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Tutti fruity. Tutti fruity. <laughs> Tutti fruity. So, acetone. Uh, people. That so, yeah, so people do breathe. And I, I have smelt it before. But they is say... It pleasant? Or is it... An- so, I mean, I've never smelt it. So, and people say, uh, you know, this fruity, sweet smell, but is it, do you smell it and you go, that just doesn't smell right? Or does it, is it no. a pleasant smell? No, it, it's, well, the one time I've smelt it, it's pleasant. Yeah. Okay. The thing is, it's been said that you shouldn't rely on that as a sign. Okay. I mean, there's going to be a bunch of signs when people come in that mm. they have it, but not to hang your hat on that because, only about 30% of patients will present with that. And it's said that a part of that problem is that people can't also smell acetone all the time. So there's a proportion of people that might not be able to smell it. So maybe some clinicians out there can't smell it. Potentially, yeah, potentially. Um, But it is one of the textbook signs of DKA um, that you can have a fruity odor in your breath. So with the other two ketones, which is uh, acetoacetate, that in itself turns into beta-hydroxybutyrate. And so you've got those two ketones now floating around the bloodstream. And they spit off some hydrogen ions. So hydrogen ions is what makes our blood acidic. 
And so as these ketones, which are now released in the body, now these ke the whole reason why these ketones are released is because they can be used as an alternate energy source outside of glucose. Now the brain can use it, other tissues can potentially use it. Ketones can easily cross the blood-brain barrier, so the brain's happy to use it. And you can actually, a normal person can, can actually produce these in a, like a starving state mm. or a fasting state, but usually... Or drop your carbohydrates and boost mm. up your short-chain fatty acids. But unlike in DKA... Um, you you generally would assume that you've got insulin in your blood and then therefore your periphery can utilize the ketones for energy. But in DKA, because there's no insulin, they're basically just locked in the blood supply. Or the blood... In the blood... Um, in the blood. <laughs> and because the end of the... Well, one part of the um, ketone group has got an OH in it, they can drop that H off to be a proton donator. And that's going to change the pH of the blood, which we've seen with this particular guy. His pH is 7.29. So now we've, we're starting to become acidic. Now, because it's mm. generated from a metabolic basis, this would be a metabolic acidosis. Is that mm -hmm. the best that's term right. for it? Okay. Now, and now, can I just jump in quickly? Um, we've got some pretty good buffering systems in the body. So we've got bicarbonate buffering systems. We've got protein buffering systems. We've got phosphate buffering systems. If, is it common, so obviously it's called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. Do you have to be clinically, like on the labs, do you have to have acidosis or do you have to have acidemia in order to be diagnosed as DKA? I don't know if that sounds no. like a stupid thing. No, 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 that's a great question. Absolutely. So the three diagnostic criteria is hyperglycemia, acidosis, and ketosis okay so yeah. they can be diabetic in ketosis but not have acidemia or be in in acidosis and then they won't be dka that's right ah, so you have to tick all three yeah so you can get um you can get ketosis from other things as well sure. um so for example you can get it from alcohol you can get it from being really hungry yeah um so you can see people that have had gastroenteritis come in with increased ketones for example gotcha. mm. so um acidosis is one of the diagnostic criteria yeah okay and and with this are you going to also look at because we've got the labs on the board mm -hmm. we can read it out again you can look at an anion gap would you do that here yeah so and can you just explain one, that quickly how you would work that out so anion gap is um the difference between your cations and anions. So it's sodium um, minus chloride plus HCO3, I think. Yeah. So in that case, and it should be below 12, right? To, uh, be, to be normal. Yeah. Anion um, gap. Yeah. No, so, right. so we've got 130 minus the chloride, which is 100. So that's 30. And then you minus off the uh, base, which is the... Um, uh, bicarbonate, this is 12, which yeah. gives you an 18, yeah. which is a raised anion gap. Yeah. yeah. And that's t what would that tell you clinically? So there's an anion gap metabolic acidosis. And this is relevant because when you correct this, you want the anion gap to reduce. Mm -hmm. um, so it's one of the things that you're looking for okay. clinically. Yeah. All right. And so now we assume that there's a lot of hydrogen or extra hydrogen in blood. Yeah. And what can, what additional thing can that do to the labs? Well, firstly, would you say that you've got hydrogen ions 
in your bloodstream, like I said, you've got a couple of buffering systems that your body uses, one of which is the bicarbonate buffering system. So I'd say in the bloodstream, very quickly, uh, as much of that hydrogen ions as possible would, would bind to available bicarbonate. And that should normally be in a, in a range of 22 to 28? Bicarbonate? Yeah, bicarbonate. Yeah, bicarbonate. So he's 12, yeah. which is significantly lower. Significantly lower. So you'd assume that because the bicarbonate in these bloods are lower, it's because the available bicarbonate has bound up with the hydrogen ions, turned it into carbonic acid, which hates itself and always splits itself apart into carbon dioxide and water, and then this carbon dioxide can only leave the body one way, and that's through the respiratory system. So you'd expect the respiration rate of this individual to be a bit different, Dinesh? Exactly. So one of the things that you can see is cool small bleeding, mm -hmm. um, and they're just deep, uh, quick respirations. So the tidal volume, each, each in and out breath is just deeper. Exactly. And that's them trying and to get they do it quickly. The and quickly. Yeah. So Yeah. Their respiration rate looks high. Okay. Yeah. And it's because they're trying to get rid of that CO2. Exactly. Which effectively is breathing off acid. Mm. That's right. So And that's, that's a combination of what hydrogen ions and carbon dioxide acting on the brainstem as yes. well as chemoreceptors throughout the bottle, which is telling the breathing center just to speed up. Okay, so I'd assume that as this bicarbonate starts to drop down, there's going to be more acid or hydrogen ions being produced than the bicarbonate combined to. So, do the hydrogen ions try and jump into the cells and do they swap themselves over with potassium? Is that something that happens throughout the body? Yeah, so your total body potassium drops because you're peeing it out, essentially. Gotcha. But your serum potassium rises or can rise because that's exactly what's happening. So effectively, the majority of... So if you take normal bloods for potassium, it's about 5 millimoles per litre. And that's quite low, but, and the majority of potassium is locked in the cells. So sodium's outside the cells, potassium's in the cells. And if you've got hydrogen ions jumping into the cells, which is positively charged, it's going to swap over for potassium, who jumps out of the cells, which is positively charged. And now the potassium value starts to go up above five millimoles per litre, even though, like you said, total mm. body potassium is dropping because yeah. you're pissing it all out. It's still serum potassium is going up. Exactly. So this must be a very difficult thing to manage, I would assume. It can be, yeah. So sometimes you can actually get people with low levels of serum potassium, and okay. that makes it even more tricky to manage. Yeah. And is that um, considered a late stage? Um... Potentially, yeah. Um, from up, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so you can, um, yeah, you, you can actually get a spectrum okay. depend, depending on what they're doing. Because from my reading, it, it kind of suggested that insulin is important to pull potassium into the blood, sorry, into, into the, the cells, cell, yeah. uh, in a normal case. But because there's no insulin, there's no way to get it back in. And because there's the pH is so low, or the hydrogen is so high, as Mike said, it jumps into the cell and the potassium comes out. Now, from my reading, it, it's suggested that in the early stages of decay, potassium levels potentially is high. Yeah. But as it goes on, then you probably pee more. Exactly. The more dehydrated, it's actually coming more normalized, which could be a problem once you initiate the treatment because if you start initiating the insulin, then you might get a huge drop. So, so can I highlight this? This is why I think it's, for me, I think it's, tricky and it's sort of you really got to think about the potassium I would assume as a clinician is that 
you're peeing out potassium. So like you said, total body potassium's dropping. And the hydrogen ions are being jumping into the cell with the potassium jumping out. So your blood serum, so your serum potassium is going up higher than normal. So you, so it, I would assume it would be easy to look at the bloods and go potassium is up overall. Like you could potentially think body potassium is too high when in actual fact body potassium is low and it's just the potassium's in the wrong area. It's it's outside the cells. It should be inside the cells. So is your aim to fix the fluid up first or to fix this potassium shifting first or do you do it mm. concurrently or what is what is your goal because yeah. obviously potassium uh, uh, hyperkalemia and hypokalemia both can result in neurological and cardio event, uh, events mm. right so what what do you do yeah so the priority for these patients i mean it's going to be multifaceted okay so what you'd ideally want to do depending on their clinical state get two large bore IVs in on both hands and then you start to replace the fluid which is going to be significant amount sometimes and would that be so, a certain type of fluid um you know you can reuse normal saline um Hartman's is another one yeah. yeah so that's one of your priorities now with that there, there is a risk of cerebral edema okay so in pediatric populations in particular, they say to be careful with it sometimes. So why would that happen? Why would you get cerebral edema? Is it just because you're putting so much fluid in? Exactly. Okay. Um, and there are already imbalance, there are electrolyte imbalances going on as well with sodium and everything. Um, so cerebral edema is one of the risks. Gotcha. And with electrolyte imbalances, that influences where the fluid moves and you know whether it crosses membranes or not depends on concentrations of these electrolytes yeah okay, okay. so you correct um, fluids what, what yep. next you said you got another so bag. yeah so you're correcting the fluids that's number one then um you want to check where your potassium's at mm -hmm. because that's going to dictate how you manage your insulin okay so if you have a low potassium by this point say you know it depends on the center but say it's around three or somewhere quite, it's getting low, then you want to start replacing that potassium first. Because when you start to give these guys insulin, that potassium is going to become intracellular again. And it goes even lower. And it's going to drop. Gotcha. So that will cause arrhythmias is your main concern. So you're on yeah. a fine line here with replacing potassium and giving insulin at a steady rate so that you don't overbear them with both insulin and potassium. Exactly. So you want to make sure that your potassium's safe enough to start the insulin. If not, then give some potassium first. Okay. Or potentially concurrently with the insulin, depending on where you're at. Wow. Yeah. Um, and you're not really, at this point in time, bothering, worrying about the glucose levels? No, you're still... Still working your way yeah. towards it, but it's not a, as a bigger priority. Not not at this point, yeah. if, especially if the potassium's off. Sure. So if your potassium's looking low as well, you want to do an ECG initially. Okay. So you want to look for ECG changes of uh, hypokalemia. Yeah. What if the potassium's high? Do you get the same type of cardiac events if it's pushing up yeah. above six, seven? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 
So low or high can both lead to cardiac events. Okay. Um, and we know that's how the lethal injection happens as well. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So, so it's high or low potassium is a very serious uh, derangement that you want to attend to. So I understand if if the potassium's low, you'd want mm-hmm. to pop them on a bag, get some potassium in there. Yeah. But if it's high, is that when you start to more so focus on managing the insulin? Because if you fix the insulin, you're going to stop the ketogenesis, yeah. you're going to stop the acid production, you're going to stop it swapping over with the potassium, and also insulin helps throw more potassium into the cells. Yeah. So would insulin be the main managed, after fluids be the primary manager? Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. And how quick does all this sort of happen? So that's the thing, we can talk about it, but time frame wise, like, do you blast them with insulin and then they just go hypo and then the potassium fix up really quickly? Is this over 12, 20 hours? How does this work? See, every single patient's different, okay. right? So sometimes you will have someone that's, you know, struggling for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes you can fix it within a couple of hours. Okay. But really, um, it's just going to depend on how they are and when they come in. But what you really want to do is, at least in the acute stages, you want to repeat the VBG between every... Venous blood gas. Venous blood gas, exactly. So in a lot of hospitals, venous blood gas is a really useful tool because it's quick, um, you can just draw it, and there's a machine that analyzes it within. Less painful. Yeah. Less painful, and the machine analyzes it within seconds, you know, two okay. minutes. So that gives you a really good reading. It gives you the pH, it gives you the electrolytes. It's not as accurate as a proper Maybe. lab no, test. Be my next question. So, so, the reason why people choose, clinicians would choose ABGs over. Well, ABGs and VBGs, there's not a huge difference from this perspective. Okay. Um, but ABGs, obviously, for respiratory pathology, um, it's going to be important. Gotcha. But it's going to be less accurate than a proper lab panel. Can, so, we, can we just quickly touch upon why... I know it's not in DKA, but I think people might... Because you said ABGs are better for when it comes to respiratory issues... Is that because we need to know the exact partial pressures of the gases, carbon dioxide, oxygen, for example, in the arterial system? That's obviously of importance when it comes to diffusion of gases and where the blood's, if the blood's been delivered or not, uh, oxygen has been delivered or not. Exactly. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. Okay, so, so with the, the, the basic take-home message with the, with with the, the management, management is you'll give fluids and insulin. Insulin, firstly, is to bring the glucose down. But to also to stop the ketone formation, and that's probably more important than the glucose, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. Because that will take care of bicarbonate and the uh, anion gap. And then fluids, that's going to take care of the dehydration. But fluids go first. Yeah, fluids first. Glucose, and it will hopefully get the kidney started again and get the creatinine back down. So is that all kind of fair? That's right. Okay. Now, would you ever do anything like... so? The potassium, the potassium you give would just go in the fluid, like just potassium chloride or something? Would that just yeah. go in with the IV fluid? Yeah. Okay. You just give it IV, yeah. Now, would you ever give something like sodium bicarbonate within like the IV fluid, or is that just a very rare instance where the pH is super low or something? Yeah, definitely not routinely. Okay. No. All right. What if you were to really put in a huge amount of insulin? 
with this? I mean, is this? Do you have to really slowly give them insulin? Is there a problem if you just smash them with insulin straight away and to drop it as quickly as possible, or is that not a good thing to do to drop the insulin as quickly as possible? Uh, drop the no. So each every hospital has a protocol of what you should start with. Yeah. And then it's just going to be a matter of titrating things and routinely monitoring it. Okay. So you repeat, say, the VBGs every half an hour to an hour, depending on how things are going. But it's very protocol-based. Yeah. And it's just titrating everything. So VBGs would be your main measure. Mm-hmm. Urinalysis, is that performed or not usually? So urinalysis, that's a really good point. And I think... Um, when we talk about that, we should just wind back a bit yeah. as to why urinalysis is important. So we talked about this guy who's coming with all these symptoms and we talked about whether he's presenting initially with DKA or whether he's not been adhering to his medications. Mm-hmm. So we talked about two reasons. But there's a, there are a bunch of other reasons why people can get into a DKA. So say we got a patient with uh, known type 1 diabetes. It's not always going to be a matter of non-adherence mm. that can cause a DKA. There are a bunch of other reasons. So one is infection. Another one is infarction. So that can be myocardial or mm-hmm. cerebral. And that would be, be, that would be less, less likely, in, in, let's say in this case, for a 17-year-old, right? Very unlikely. Okay. But yeah. if it was a, a type 1 who's... 50, 60, that would be something you're thinking of. Yeah. Or even younger, because you've got to realize that if these guys have been managing their diabetes poorly, they're going to have a lot of vascular damage early on. Yeah, all right. So that could be one. Uh, Another one is intoxication. So that can be drug or alcohol related. It can be iatrogenic. So if someone's been changing their insulin regimen, that can be another one. So there's things like the five eyes, right? Yeah. Okay. And there are also things like pregnancy that can cause it. Um, incision is another one, so surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so basically, a lot of states that put the body in a state of stress. Yeah, okay. Yeah, can cause and that, it. So that, is that speaking to... When you put the body into a state of stress, one, you're increasing its demand for glucose, which mm. means its demand for insulin. Um, yet if that, and also when you put a body into a state of stress, um, you can potentially release some counter-regulatory hormones that try that release more insulin into mm. the body. And so, or counteract, counteract it, or stop, stop it. Doesn't it just stop its um, effectiveness? Yes, but also there's going to be things like cortisol, which is going to stimulate glycogenolysis. Mm. Promote the amount of glucose being produced. Mm. Glucose. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Sorry, that's my fault. Um, and catecholamines. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So all these things. So that's um, why. That's why I chucked up. So I chucked the thirty-eight degrees temperature up. Exactly. I, I wanted so to put a kind of possible infection in there. Exactly. So going back to that and the importance of urinalysis, mm. what we see in the immediate result is whether they have a leukocytosis in their urinalysis. So we can see a bunch of white cells. And that... That's indicating... UTI? Yeah, exactly. That could indicate a UTI if it's a non-contaminated sample. But that's that's getting into some specifics. So you'd look at nitrates as well for that if it's a UTI. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
But the main marker will be, you know, if they've got a bunch of leukocytes yeah. in the urine. Um, in a clean catch, because you're not going to get a culture back straight away. It mm -hmm. takes a couple of days to get a culture back. So if you've got a bunch of leukocytes, you're suspicious that there might be a UTI going on. Yeah. But it doesn't really end there. So you, want, you might want a chest x-ray. Yeah. You may, you, you know, you might have already done an ECG. And so the um, chest x-ray is for pneumonia, maybe? Exactly. Okay. So you want a chest x-ray to see if there's pneumonia. So UTI, just quickly, a UTI yep. is a significant enough infection mm. that increases the demand of insulin significantly that it uh, alters this whole insulin. Oh, absolutely. People get very, very sick with UTIs. Okay. Um, particularly in the little ones and the elderly. Um, these can cause significant problems. Okay. So a UTI is definitely, definitely a significant infection. And like I said, pneumonia okay. or other respiratory tract infections. And in the history, you might get whether they've had a viral upper respiratory tract infection or something else going on. And would you all just take their blood and look for certain markers for infection as well? So you can. You can uh, see whether there's a white cell count. Or there's a, another measure called CRP or C-reactive protein that can go up quickly as well. And that's an inflammation marker. Exactly. The problem with CRP is that it doesn't actually tell you what infection you have. It just tells you you have an infection. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so you want to start looking for all these causes. And if you can't find any source of infection, another one's a blood culture. Um, so that just cultures your blood and see if anything grows in it. Another couple of things to cover, I think, is relevant here, is that people can also present with abdominal pain and nausea as well. Okay. So why and, abdominal? What's going on there? Yeah, so a part of it is that um, you might be getting a gastroparesis or a change in the motility okay. of the abdomen. Um but an important thing to remember here is that you need to examine their abdomen because you can have intra-abdominal pathology like an appendicitis or a cholecystitis or something else going on that might be causing the decay that as well. That could be the infection. Exactly. Or something that needs to be addressed in itself. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So that's, that's why a thorough examination of the patient is important when possible. Okay. Yeah. So those are, those are the causes. And what about, like you said, when it comes to um, vomiting? So why would you vomit if, if is that because you've just got an, uh, an osmolarity imbalance and that's sort of stimulating the chemoreceptive trigger zone of the brain, making you spew and the acids triggering it too? And pH, pH. pH. Um, I mean, it can, it's, it can be multifactorial, mm. but it also changes... Uh, the motility of your gastrointestinal tract as ah, well. So you can get things like gastroparesis mm. and okay. delayed gastric emptying yeah. that can cause people to feel nauseous and vomit. Yeah. I assume if they vomit, they're losing even more fluid too. Yes, and causing more of an electrolyte imbalance yeah, as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That can be so... A lot, a lot going, going on. on. There's a heap going on. So, so would you stabilize them and, and then admit them into ICU, ICU or... Um, a yeah, ward or would you exactly okay. so the goal is I mean ideally you'd like to keep these people out of the ICU um, because if they go to the ICU it means that they're very sick and that's going to an ICU admission in itself is associated with a high level of mortality and complications 
So hopefully you can stabilize the patient well enough to get them up to the ward. Um, and once, if you can get them off the intravenous insulin quickly enough, they'll go back to their subcutaneous insulin regimen. Okay. And so when you're uh, monitoring them, let's just say things are improving and their glucose is going back down, is that a reason to kind of slow down the insulin or are you looking for something else more yes. so? So you want to look at everything. Um, so you look you look at the glucose, but you also look at the anion gap okay. as well. So that's potentially where the ketones are rectifying or not. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I think we're really done. Should we do a, a roundup summary? Yeah. So I think roundup summary would be with DKA, uh, predominantly a type one diabetic, uh, either undiagnosed or and jump in at any point if I yeah. miss something. Um, predominantly undiagnosed or not managing their insulin very well um, or potentially having an infection which is increasing the demand for glucose and therefore insulin and so again it's not managed very well. Uh, This results in increased amount of glucose in the system that the body can't utilize properly due to lack of insulin. This produces glycogenolysis uh, and gluconeogenesis so the production of ketones ultimately are produced Ketones, the three types, beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetone, and, ac- and acetone. Yep. Uh, they produce acid as a byproduct. This acid binds to bicarbonate, reduces the bicarbonate amount in the bloodstream, also jumps into the cells, swaps over for potassium, and potassium levels start to change. But at the same time, because of all the glucose, you're peeing a lot, which means you're releasing a lot of fluid, and you're peeing out all these ions at the same time. So ion and fluid levels start to become a bit, uh, bit off. Um, what else we talking make about? you thirsty. Makes you thirsty. Early on, it would be the lethargy from the lack of ATP. Yeah, because more breathing because the increased CO2, so it changes your respiration, but also the, the acid is going to be um, stimulating your certain parts of your um, brainstem, so carbon dioxide and acid directly, changing the way you breathe. Um, the dehydration will drop your blood pressure down, which will affect or increase your heart as a compensation, and then your kidneys will start to be hyperperfused. And when it comes to management, you said fluids, insulin, insulin potassium. Exactly. Get that sorted. Yeah. Okay. Those, are, those are probably the three big things that you want to get sorted. And, and just, just if, if, a if a patient, patient presents like this and you suspect DKA, is this like a high category rate? Like are they straight through? Generally, yeah. And again, it depends on how sick they are when they present. Okay. You know, so you can get a... a a spectrum of people. So you can get the comatose patient to someone who's walking around and just quite nauseous with abdominal pain. And so you're also also looking, looking, we didn't really touch upon this, but you're also also looking looking at GCS, so their Mm. cognition and their, um, how How orientated they are to place. Like the Glasgow Coma Scale? Yeah. Yeah. And so from my understanding, the biggest player with the change in cognition is the, the osmolarity which kind of pulls the water out of the neurons and causes dysfunction. That's even, it. Even more so than the pH. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Osmolarity, yeah. And again, all the other derangements contribute, but that's, that, that is the main thing. And if that is an issue, then the fluids that you give would, should rectify that? Ideally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just quickly, just finish up, I'm interested. How quickly does somebody jump out of a coma once you rectify this? 
Is it like invariable, or do yeah. people just? I mean, can you give them insulin and fluids, and then you just watch them go boonk, and open their eyes and things are going on? It's variable, actually. I've never had a DKA patient in a coma okay. present. I've had DKA patients. So is that um, because it's rare, or that people tend to come in before they hit that point? Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. That's that's the goal. Um, Remember that we spoke about some. The other day, but when, when they, they discovered insulin, insulin which, which they, they got, got from a dog, dog I think they, they got, got from dogs' pancreases, yeah. um, and, they and they first used it in the pediatric ward, the, the, the two, two scientists that first utilised it, they injected it, so the whole ward was comatose, because all the kids would die from this, back in the day before insulin was found. And they injected the first person, and as they walked down the ward and kept them injected in insulin, by the time they got to the last person, the first one was waking up. And so this was, oh, I can't remember when it was. But this gave them the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So that just was a discovery of insulin. the same needle, so every child got hepatitis too. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that actually happened, but... Well, with the comatose patients, you've got to remember too that um, you've got to, you know, with every patient you've got to make sure you get the basics sorted for them to survive. So if their airway is not protected, mm. you might be getting to a point where you, then you need to intubate them. or So, you know, that could potentially mean they're not going to wake up straight away. Um, so, it, it, you know, with a lot of these things, it's a spectrum of disease and people will come in very sick or, you know, not as sick. Yeah. Um, and the management is really, it, it can be a bit of a symphony as well of trying to get all these different things right and depending on the patient's physiology and the comorbidity or the cause that's going on it's it's just going to be a balancing act of course it should be a lot harder in the older patients with those comorbidities especially if they're a so have you seen it with a type 2 diabetic before i assume that would be very rare um, so you can get insulin-dependent type 2 diabetics. Yeah. Oh, um, gotcha. Once it's that, can, that stage and they sort of just start to... That can go into these yeah. states. Another tricky one is, um, you know, you can get patients that are dialysis-dependent mm. that are very tricky to manage yeah. um, in these scenarios as well. Have you ever had an issue in regards to it, having a problem with pancreatitis, acute pancreatitis, um, potentially being, I don't know, happening at the same time or sort of the looking at what's going on in regards to, just trying to think exactly. The cause of lack of insulin? Do you mean mean with with diabetes diabetes or or on its own? With DKA, having an acute pancreatitis, pancreas is sort of not working very well and, you know, maybe it releases amylase into the bloodstream and maybe you need to measure things like amylase or anything like that to rule in or rule out or mm. as a cause. I don't know. So, so that can be a cause of it, certainly. And it's going to depend on your physical examination, history, yeah. risk factors as well. Yeah. I'm sure we can talk about pancreatitis one day because it's a whole new topic. That's a good idea, but, actually. Let's put that on the list. Um, it's not going to be the high on the list, list to tell you that. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, absolutely, it could be a reason. Um, Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.